a retired cop holds lots of secrets. Hello and welcome back. This is Crime Over Cocktails and I'm your host, Tiffany. Today I have guest Vic Ferrari. He is a retired New York PD and wore many, many hats. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much, Tiffany, for having me on. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. So my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. I grew up in the Bronx, born and raised city kid. Uh, When I was five years old, my mother used to take me to the movie theater, which was around the corner from the police station. So as a little boy, I always used to run up to the police cars and look in the windows and, you know, look at the equipment. And then every little boy sees that gun, a cop's carrying around. I was like, I want one of those, you know, by 10, my friends and I used to go into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and go around the neighborhood, like trying to have a manhunt. So, you know, we'd walk into the local deli (laughs) with the wanted posters. Some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Chicago and like, that could be the fucker right there, you know? <laughs> so I knew what I wanted to do since I was a little boy. I always wanted to be a police officer. By 20, I took the police exam and uh, I went into the New York City Police Academy at 21 years old. I worked there 20 years. I worked in a lot of different units, uh, DUI. I was in plain clothes. 15 out of my 20 years, I worked in narcotics. And my last 10, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So anything with chop shops, um, uh, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on stolen cars for resale. And of course, the mafia was kind of under my purview. After I uh, retired from the NYPD, I moved to Florida and I've got into writing a series of books about my former employer. Is it a specific thing that you write about or is it just you're hitting all different kind of topics? No, all my books, I'm I'm not talented enough to write in chronological order. So all my books, there's no beginning, middle, end. There's just a chapter. There'll be a chapter in my book and boom, stories, be it police corruption or funny criminals or interesting criminals or cases I worked on. They're great travel books. Yeah. Who doesn't love true crime? <laughs> so we're all doing it's, it. It's true. <laughs> I would love to hear of some of the funny ones that you have. It has been one hell of a week and I could laugh. (laughs) It's only Wednesday, but okay. What what would you like to hear? How about, did you used to like pull people over and all that kinds of stuff? Yeah. So in New York, um, there is a summons quota. They they expect you to write tickets, although they'll deny it in newspapers and say, no, you know, but of course they do. So in New York, you had to write 25 parking tickets a month. 10 moving violations, three of which had to be red lights. So you could deliver five babies and find capture Osama bin Laden. If you didn't have those parking tickets and moving violations, you were going to get a, a subpar evaluation. So, yes, we really? had to write tickets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, at most NYPD cops, if they pull you over and you got your paperwork and you're nice, you give them a bullshit excuse or you apologize, most of the time they're not going to give you a ticket. There's more than enough people up there, scumbags that that have it coming to them that are going to get a ticket. Um, unfortunately, like all police departments, including the NYPD, you have the summons cops. They tend to work by themselves. They're antisocial. They ne- never date an attractive girl in school. They got picked on as kids. And now the power is in 
the pen and they'll pull you over and they don't want to hear it. You're just a number to them. And it's like, sorry, Ma, the law is the law. So we tend, they were kind of shunned. They were pariahs in the station house. And like back in the old days, like you get phone calls all the time, right? So you get a phone call from a cop in another precinct and you, let's just, I'll throw a name out. I'll just say Sullivan, like, what's the story with this guy, Sullivan? And you go, oh God, what did he do now? It's like, he banged my brother-in-law and it's like, I'll talk to him, you know, but um, the summons guys used to get messed with because if they got a little too pen happy, like the guys in the locker room would take their locker and turn it upside down and throw it in the shower. You know what oh, I mean? Okay. And, and put the water on. Oh, yeah. I, I saw it happen more than a couple of times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like if they get they started writing one too many tickets, they'd get fucked with silly. <laughs> I knew there was always a quota. They said there wasn't. Oh, I yeah. knew it. <laughs> I didn't realize they that they were like on rugs. specific things, though. Well, they call them activity goals. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just it's it's nonsense. That's your goal. So you want to hear something? So you want to hear funny stuff? Okay, so I'll tell you a story from my book NYPD Through the Looking Glass. So if there's one thing that's going to land you in hot water in the New York City Police Department, it's losing your gun, your shield, or your ID card. If you lose any of those three, you're going to lose 30 vacation days, and they're going to put you a year on disciplinary probation. So cops are paranoid about losing those three things. So there was a guy we worked with. He wasn't the brightest of people. He lived in a shitty neighborhood. He was going to go out drinking one night, and there were a lot of burglaries in his neighborhood. So we figured, I don't want to bring my gun with me. So he hid his gun in his apartment, the one place he didn't think a burglar would look, his oven. So he goes out cocktailing, gets all lick it up, four hours, nine beers later. Comes home, a little hungry, a little bit. So he goes into the kitchen, preheats the oven to 425, goes into the living room, starts channel surfing, and there, there's gunpowder and bullets. And when you heat bullets in, in a stove at 425 or whatever it was, the rounds started going off in, in, in the stove. So probably the first shot scared the shit out of him. The second one is, oh, shit, I know what that is. And he crawled out of his apartment on his hands and knees and had to call 911 on himself. And then they had to have emergency service come up and needed a new gun because it was blown to bits. He needed a new stove. And yes, 30 vacation days and a year of disciplinary probation. Oh, my God. So we well, you got to realize something. New York City Police Department at any given time has between 30 and 35,000 members. So we hire in bulk. So a small police academy class is 250. A large class can be 2,500. And it, and as you know, as well as they try to screen out the bad apples and the nincompoops, inevitably you're going to get a couple get through, and eventually they're going to rise to the top or rise to the bottom, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> I haven't heard the name nincompoop in a very long time, and I appreciated that. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm a wordsmith. <laughs> Those are big classes, though. Like, I find both of those pretty large. So at least, I mean, they're putting them through. Well, in New York City, you've got 77 police stations spread out across the five boroughs. And each precinct, like out in Staten Island, which is like Little House on the Prairie, those precincts have like 100 cops in it. And then like a precinct in a a decent sized precinct is about 250 cops. And then you've got the Manhattan precincts like Midtown North and Midtown South. They probably have four or 500 cops. And, and that's not including specialized units where I worked my last 10 years. So, I mean, there's a lot of NYPD members out there. Have you ever had to turn another one of them in for something? 
Yeah. Um, unfortunately, there is police corruption. When I was a detective, we used to laugh, but I mean, laugh, but the tongue in cheek, whenever we would go up on a wiretap on, you know, an organized crime, inevitably some knucklehead cop would wander onto the playing field now knowingly and sometimes unknowingly, like, you know, Uncle Joe asked him to run a plate because somebody left their wallet or something and the, and the nitwit goes and runs the plate, but this guy owes them money and they're trying to figure out where this guy lives so they can send a couple of thugs over to tune him up. You know what I mean? And then we did a case. I did a case where we had Chinese nationals exporting 25 to 30 stolen Audis a month to Shanghai. And once we went up on those wiretaps, there were a couple of cops that were actually really good friends with the car thieves. And what the car thieves would do is, when these two these cops were motorcycle enthusiasts, so if they blew the motor on their motorcycle or they need plastic for their bike or the fairings or something, their friends would get it for them, which was all stolen parts. In turn, what what um what the cops would do is they would run plates for the bad guys. So let's say for argument's sake, two of our thieves spot a car they want to steal, they would just give the plate to these two cops, they'd run the plate, and then they had the address to go and steal this person's car. Abuse of authority. That's pretty much what it is. Well, it's, it's more than abuse of authority. It's it, it's it's criminal, right? I mean, you're 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 providing you're providing sensitive information to an organized crime group so they can commit a crime against you know a civilian. So, yeah, they got locked up. Did you see a whole lot of that? Not a lot, but when I was a rookie before I was a rookie cop, the first thing I saw of police corruption was, and it's in it's in one of my books. I'm a kid. I'm working as an exterminator out of high school. I absolutely hated it. And there was this bar in the Bronx that they wanted me in at six o'clock in the morning and they wanted me out of there no later than 630, right? But the bar was a gambling den, right? So I walked in there and I realized you got all the the policy slips and, and, and betting information and stuff laying around. So I just would come in and spray for cockroaches and leave. So one day I was behind the bar and I heard someone come in and I heard a very gruff voice I come up from behind the bar and the bartender is handing this bald headed cop a brown paper bag. And the cop looks at me and just starts. He explodes. What the fuck is he doing here? Blah, blah. And, the, and, the, and the bartender's like, don't worry about him. He's a kid. He's an exterminator. He's fucking high school. Get out of here. Right. And the way the bartender talked to the cop, I was shocked because the cop kind of snapped into line and left. So it's like, you know, I'm a teenager. I don't think nothing of it. Right. So and I swear to God, I don't I'm a magnet for shit like this that I run into people from my pet. I could tell you story upon story. So anyway, a couple of years later, I'm a rookie cop. I'm in field training. I'm in the South Bronx precinct. And who's fucking locker is like right down the thing. I, I heard the voice first and I was like, that voice sounds familiar. And I look, I'm like, <laughs> you know, like, holy shit. It's the guy in the bar with the brown paper bag like three years ago. Oh and he looks God. at me. And he recognizes me, right? It was the most awkward thing. And all this guy <laughs> said, for, like, so field training back then was six months. All I heard this guy say, and he said it loud enough for me to hear repeatedly, all I got to do is another three fucking months and I can retire. Right? So it's like, you know, hint, hint. You're not, I was just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was almost like a prison movie. So I would never go into the locker room unless I was with another couple of rookies. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to get fucking cornered by this guy. So years later. So wait, it gets better. So he retires. And then I used to see him driving around the precinct with crackhead females in the car. Like he was kind of like a 
substitute pimp, maybe? I don't know. He was oh always God. had these crackheads in the car. So later on, like 10 years later, I'm in narcotics and I'm working with this guy that worked in that precinct for many years. And I didn't know his name, but I was describing him. The car he drove, the voice and the bald head and the he had like a fucking brushy mustache. And he goes, oh, him? He goes, yeah. He goes, he was bad news. I see. He goes, yeah. He goes, when I, because this guy had like three, four years on me and he was in that precinct around that guy. He goes, he goes, I'm, he goes it, it doesn't surprise me at all. He goes, he was into a lot of shit. He goes, he's like a throwback. And you got to remember, I got hired in 1987. So you still had a lot. And I'm not saying they were all bad, but there were a lot of the Vietnam guys still around. You know what I mean? And right. those guys played by a whole different set of rules. Like they were fearless and you didn't fuck with them. And, you know, they were they were just a different kind of cat. He probably had crack in that bag to give to the hookers. <laughs> No, I think what I think was that that knowing what I know about the police department, what I think it was is he was I think he was the summons guy and he used to drive around first thing in the morning that they were probably giving him money a not to write tickets in front of that place and b tip them off if he heard something. Mm, He was getting paid off. I think so. I mean, listen, they they could have been a sandwich in that bag, but (laughs) but the way he but the way he reacted. When 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 I popped up from behind the bar and then three years later, you know, he's looking at me, you know, sideways. Something wasn't right. Right. You know, but you don't know if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. But you have that gut feeling and usually that's always right. (laughs) I think so. Yes. What goes on like at the chop shops? Obviously, they're cutting stuff up and everything. But like, is it like what you see in the movies when they drive in and you got the guys all over the place doing all kinds of stuff? So now I'm retired 15 years. So things have changed. Okay, so a chop shop can be a legit business, a legit junkyard, a legit body shop that will take in a steal, a stolen car. Right. Because say you own a junkyard, right? And a couple of teenagers or a junkie shows up with a stolen car and you don't think he's a cop. You give this guy a hundred bucks. It's found money because now that car in parts, I mean, is 30 times worth more than the hundred bucks you just gave some crackhead. A lot of times and a lot of times in these body shops and junkyards, the cars are stolen, but they're not. And I'll, I'll explain. You have an uncle that owns a junkyard and you lease a car. And you go over the mileage and you went cocktailing one night in St. Pete and you got into a little fender bender and your kid threw up in the back seat. So, you know, when you return that car to the leasing company, you're going to get screwed, right? Because the leasing company is going to hit you for all these damages, right? Or say you own a car and you're falling behind the payments. So what you do is you go to Uncle Joe and you go, Uncle Joe. I got all these problems when I'm caught. Don't worry about it, Tiffany. Bring the car in on Thursday. We'll make it disappear. So you bring your car over to Uncle Joe. He closes the gate. He tells you, Tiffany, today's Thursday. I'll call you next week when that car is in a million pieces on different on, on customers' cars and sold. You go into the precinct in St. Pete next week, and you report it stolen. You tell them the night before, you looked out your window, your car was there. You got up in the morning to go to work. Your car's gone. So it's called a, a, a give up or an insurance job. So what a lot of the mob places we would do is we would put up a pole camera across the street. They wouldn't know it was there. We'd set up a surveillance camera and you'd watch cars go in and we'd write down the plates based on these, you know, on on the camera. And then if the car doesn't come out, 
and we run the play a week later and the car comes back stolen. Well, Houdini doesn't work in that junkyard. They chopped it. So we would get a warrant and go in and hit the place. Then you have um, backyard chop shops. So those are people that, you know, they rent a space in back of a house or they have their own garage. And they're either into racing kids that, run, you know, that are racing Hondas or BMWs and they blow an engine. Well, they're not going to BMW to spend eight grand on, on an M3 motor. They're going to go out and steal an M3, bring it into their friend's garage. They're going to take the motor out or whatever they want. And then they'll either tow it out of there. What they'll do is with a sawzall or an acetylene torch, they'll chop it. We call it bones. So they chop the, the cowl and everything in, into sections, right? After they take what they want. And then you'll have a guy, there's usually a guy in the neighborhood who'll take that stuff to a scrap metal processor because he gets paid by the pound. So we used to call it Robin the Stagecoach. We would hang out by a scrap metal processor. And if you see a flatbed coming by with all these hunks of brand new cars chopped in pieces, hey, my man, where did this shit come from, right? And, you know, he uh, like, well, you can tell us where this stuff is coming from or you're going to jail for it. So and they usually would see the light and spill right. their guts. <laughs> well, isn't it always, oh, we don't want you. We want the big fish. <laughs> well, you like to go up. It, yeah, it's the same with auto crime as in, it is in narcotics. You, you want to go up. You want to get through the problem. So you got to remember, when I was a cop in New York City, we were averaging 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. Wow. So, yeah, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, if you had a computer in the car and you ran enough plates, you were in a car chase. I mean, it was just that, you know, it used to go on all the time. That's crazy. I never knew that people would steal cars to take parts for them for their own car. I always thought it was people who wanted to steal the car, but they had to like get rid of the VIN number or whatever. And then well, that's different. So that's different. So say for argument's sake, um, you got a scumbag. Well, say I'm your scumbag cousin and you're <laughs> complaining, you're complaining to me. You want what kind of car do you want, Tiffany? I want a truck, a big truck. Uh, so what do you want, an F-150? Sure. Okay, so you want <laughs> you want an F-150 and you only got $15,000. And I go, Tiffany, my cousin, I'm going to make this happen for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to an auction and I'm going to buy a wrecked 2018 F-150. The thing is burned. It's It's a wreck. It's never coming back to life. I just buy a shell. I take all the VIN numbers off that car, off that F-150, right? And then I get rid of the body of it. It goes to a scrap metal processor because it's garbage. Then what I do is I go out and I steal a 2020 or a 2019 or a 2018, somewhere where the body style and everything is the same. Then I'm going to take all those VIN numbers and I'm going to replace it on the steel. And then I'm going to give you the paperwork and you're going to register. But there's more to it than that because... A lot of times that title will have salvage on it or rebuilt or something. So then you punt the title to another state. So we're going to mail that title. Your cousin in New Jersey, where New Jersey is the Wild West with titles, that salvage title goes to New Jersey and you register it for a day in New Jersey. It washes away. I can't believe I'm, I'm giving up title washing. <laughs> then you take then you take the title and you punt it back to Florida and you work it walk into DMV and the 65 year old DMV employee is going to come out and look at the VIN number. And go, okay. She's not going to know any better. The way they get caught is they get greedy. They don't match the color. They don't get year for year or take a base model. 
they'll buy the uh, at auction a base model and then they'll go steal the deluxe with leather seats and dual exhaust and the bigger motor. So I used to be able to read a VIN number. So I'd run a plate and I could tell by that VIN number, the VIN number talks. It tells you what kind of engine options sometimes. So I'd look at it and go, no, 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 no. That's no fucking way. And we also had, we had different tools. We could check a vehicle salvage history. So if I, I run that plate and I run it through salvage and I go, the insurance company paid out $36,000 for that Ford. There's no way that Ford is driving. You know what I mean? Right. It was a hunk of shit. Right. So they used to do that all the time. Wow. You guys get access to a lot of stuff. That really helps. Because, I mean, without that, how would you know? So, I mean. You wouldn't. Yeah. But but here's the thing. like, And, and I recovered hundreds, hundreds of vehicles like, with the VIN numbers changed. 75 to 80% of the time, the people know. Because whoever got that car for them tells them you can't bring it to a dealer. Don't bring that fucking car to a dealer or a good mechanic because they're going to plug it into the computer or they're going to start looking things up and go, what the? They're going to know. A mechanic's going to know just by the options and the VIN number and, you know, different things. This car didn't come with this. This option wasn't available. So basically, you've got that car life or you're going to sell it to a close friend or a family member that's going to keep their mouth shut and do the same thing. Yeah, I'm good. I'll just drive my legal car. <laughs> yeah, you don't want somebody like me crawling underneath your car <laughs> looking for VIN numbers. Yeah, yeah I don't need all that. <laughs> you sleep better at night. <laughs> what other funny stories do you have? Well, uh, how about funny and then it gets dark? How's that? Perfect. I like it. All right. I'll tell you the Hansel. I'll tell you the Hansel and Gretel story. It's the oh. early 90s. Me and my <laughs> friends are going out. No, it's funny. Me and my friend. It's the early 90s. Me and my friends were going to cop bars and meeting girls. And there was this other cop that worked in another precinct to work with my old partner. And in his spare time, he was an amateur magician. So we're at the bar talking to girls and this fucking guy come over and he's pulling flowers out of his sleeve and he's pulling the coins from the ear. He's essentially cock blocking us with magic. <laughs> so I turned to my old partner. I go, get him the fuck out of here. I can't take it. Like, How do you compete? So he says, you know, he goes, if this guy took his career as seriously as he did making balloon animals in the radio car practicing for kids parties, he goes, he'd be a one man crime stopper. A couple of weeks later, the magician of my old partner get called into a basement comes over as a course for help in, in a basement. They go into this basement of a building. It's a six-story walk-up. There's two doors. They go to door number one. They start pounding on door number one. Nobody answers. My old partner goes to hit door number two, and the magician stops him because he's lazy. He goes, come on. All the noise we made down here, it's after 11 o'clock. Let's get out of here. My old partner goes to bang on the door. He goes, come on. Let's get the fuck out of here. I'll buy a cup of coffee. So they leave. What they didn't realize is behind door number two, the, the super or the building was selling coke out of the apartment and he had fallen behind on his wholesaler. In the drug world, they don't like send you nasty notices in the mail or threatening emails, right? Right. They're going to kill this guy. And, and this guy knows he's got a problem, right? So they can't get him out of his apartment. So they do an old gypsy trick. They bring an attractive female. They knock on the door and they put the girl's face in front of the door. The guy's like, no, looky here. He opens the door. And the three of them fucking come charging in the apartment. They bum rush him, right? They're pistol whipping him. Where's the drugs? Where's the money? He doesn't have the answers. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him out of the apartment and they throw him in the furnace of the building. So while he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they go back into the apartment and they start ransacking it, right? 
That's when my old partner and the magician show up. So now they're going to knock on the door and the killers are inside the apartment and like, fuck, we got a problem. So they tell the girl who's in on this. Listen, if those cops knock on the door, let them in. Start yelling. They were Albanian. You start screaming in Yugoslavia and pointing to the kitchen. Walk them down the hallway. When you get past the threshold of this bedroom, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come out from behind and we'll shoot them in the head. And then we'll throw them in the furnace. I mean, it, you, you killed one person. You got to fully commit now, right? So they never knock on the door. So a week or two later goes by and the superintendent of the building, he's got family. And now, you know, what happened to him? So they call the police. The detectives get involved and the detectives see that there was a 911 call into that apartment a couple of weeks before. So what they do is they call in my partner, the magician. They go, you know, you went down there a week or two ago. Did you notice anything out of character or anything different? Like, no, we knocked on this door. We should have knocked on that door. But my old partner, we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. But that's another story. Oh so, my God. so he says, you know, it's funny. When we were leaving, there was a car parked outside on a fire hydrant. So I gave it a parking ticket. So that was the getaway car. So they track and it belonged to the female. So they bring the female in and now she starts tap dancing. She's like, ah, you know, she gives up the two killers. They charge all three with murder. Then the detectives had to go back to the building, right? And shut the heat off. It was like in February. And they had to let the house, the, the building cool off for like two days while everybody froze their ass off to get into that furnace and get the guy's bones and skull out. Oh, my God. So that chat, that story is called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. <laughs> and I bet you never thought that you would ever say that. <laughs> no, I had to think of, I had to think of a catchy title for a story. The funny thing about that magician is more to him. So a year or two after that, he gets transferred. And um, my friend's mother is the victim of a pickpocketing, right? She goes into the bank. She withdraws money. And these two guys bump into her. They, they saw where she put the money in her bag. They take it. Thankfully, some of the bank saw what they did. They call 911. The magician grabs these two guys, right? And from the minute he's from the minute he, he's talking to my friend's mother, he's trying to talk her out of pressing charges because he's lazy. And he's like, well, these cases get dropped all the time. She's like, fuck this. He had my money, right? I want him arrested. My friend's mother was no joke. So he says, All right, I'll tell you what. I'll be back in two hours. I'll pick you up at your house and I'll take you down to court and you can press charges. She says, Okay. She goes home. Two hours later, she is whoop, whoop. Police car's out front. She comes out. She walks up to the police car. The magician's in the police car. He's pissed off that he's stuck with this arrest. And he's got the two bad guys in the backseat of the car. She goes, what the fuck is this? He goes, don't you want to go down to court? She goes, you you brought the two guys that robbed me to my house? She goes, (laughs) now they know where I live. So he goes, oh. He goes, oh. So he looks in the mirror and he goes, hey, guys, you better not come back here. And she goes, Listen to you, they're criminals. She goes, kiss my ass. I'm not pressing charges. Oh my god. Yeah, he was a piece of work. Epic fail. Did she get her money back? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you gotta go back to that other thing. That was funny. What's that? Uh the guy you said who's killed too many people. <laughs> Well, they didn't kill too many. I mean, you know, nobody's going to be missed and they had it coming. So this is a funny story. So one day I was going to court and I see this. As I'm going past the Bronx River Parkway, I see a car race by and I see like 
10 police cars chasing it into Westchester County. So I get on the radio and it turns out a check cashing place got robbed. But I was going down and I had a Hyundai at the time. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to keep up with the chase. Anyway, these guys robbed the check cashing place. And it was first thing in the morning. My old partner, this guy, Cancer, he's in his personal car. He's coming home. He's going going home. And he sees the cops chasing this, this car up the Bronx River Parkway. And as the bad guy's car flies by him, he sees a guy with a gun, right, trying to shoot out the back window. So he says, you know what, maybe I'll get involved in this. So he get caravans. He gets involved in the chase in his own personal car, right? <laughs> Somehow, somehow this car chase uh, winds up in Westchester County Medical Center's parking lot. And basically, you've got the bad guy's car this way and like all the police cars facing each other. Their doors are open and they're just trading lead. They're just the doors are open and the bad guys are shooting and the cops are shooting, right? Just like the movies. My old partner pulls up like at the top of this hill and he goes, I'm watching. He goes, it's like a movie, like like the grassy knoll. So he gets out of his car and he starts walking down the grassy knoll and he's watching these guys shoot at each other, right? All he's got is a five-shot 38 revolver with a two-inch barrel. Now, that gun is excellent up close and personal, but you don't want to get into a, a, a lengthy gun battle with a five-shot 38 because, A, it's not that accurate. B, you only got five shots, right? We're going to do after five. Throw it. So yeah, these, these no. guys exchange He's watching these guys exchange gunfire, right? So I go, what did you do? He goes, I took aim. The guy had the door open and he was shooting at the cops. He goes, I took aim. He goes, I let go a shot and it went high. He goes, and it must have whizzed over his head because the guy went like this. He he heard it. He turned and he saw me, right? He goes, he turned to start shooting at me. He goes, I got another shot off. He goes, I hit him in the armpit. So when he hit him in the armpit, the guy started like, you know, like shooting in the air. The third shot he got off. He says, I hit him right in the top of the head. He goes, he goes, Vic, it looked like a tomato. He goes, it just went and the top of his head. And then he fell into the car. And then then the cops were able to focus on the driver. And then they got they lit him up. And then, you know, they were able to put an end to it. Wow, that's crazy. Mm -mm. I would not be walking anywhere (laughs) around that. No, exactly. Now they're they're going to have their target on you. Well, here's the thing, and I, I tell this all the time, and, I, and I've worked in two different places, two different police departments in my career. Most cops, 90% of cops are not afraid of getting killed. Not going to happen to me. It's just, it's not. They're more afraid of getting in trouble. Mm. You're definitely more afraid of getting in trouble than getting killed because you're afraid of getting killed. You wouldn't chase people, right? You wouldn't get into the situations. You wouldn't go looking where most people wouldn't look or knows and where most people wouldn't go. But that's so, your job. I, I agree. And and if you have obviously somebody like me or, you know, guys I work with that personality type, you're not afraid of things like that. Right. No, I mean, I get that. If you were, I mean, that'd be one hell of a job you're putting yourself through. But no, they, they there are cops that are afraid. I hate to say it. Um, uh, in my book, NYP law, law and disorder, there's a chapter entitled, um, Sickness, health, and fat bastards. And it's about <laughs> overweight cops, you know, and cowards and, you know, ones that are trying to, you know, game the system and get out on disability. There were two female. When I was a young cop, there were two female cops in my precinct, both weighed over 250 pounds. And in New York, you don't take a police car home. Those cars run 24-7. So these two females work day shift. I did four to twelve. So every afternoon at three o'clock when I came into work, I would take the car from them. 
And you'd get in that car and the back seat was like a who's who of where they were for the day. McDonald's bags, Dunkin' Donuts, fucking Chinese food. It was like a bad news buffet. Spent <laughs> half the, my first half hour of the tour cleaning out the back seat of all this shit. So in the old days, the police cars had the long bench seats, right? So these two women, they were so heavy that after a month with a new car, their weight would break the supports in, in the bench seats. So like me and my partner driving around, if you slammed on the gas, you went into the back seat. So I had to go to a local dairy and borrow a couple of milk crates and stick them in the back seat. So we oh, didn't go flying into God. the back seat. So whenever we had an arrest, we had to fucking take the milk crates and put them in the trunk and put the bad guys in the back seat and tell the bad guys, listen, I'm sorry if I crush your knees on the way to the station out. So one time I had court and then I came back from court. So I was doing a day shift and I got into a foot chase with a burglary suspect and I'm running down Broadway and I'm putting the description over. And as I'm running down Broadway, I see a police car. And I'm like, perfect. They'll head them off. And as I'm getting closer, it's these two heavy set female cops. And I see one adjusting her radio. So she hears it coming. Right. As I'm running past them, she just the two of them just stand there and I go racing back and I cursed at them, of course. And I kept chasing the kid. Finally, I lock up the kid. I bring him into the station house. And when they came in, I just started unloading on them in front of everybody. So a sergeant pulled me aside. He goes, what happened? And I explained it to him. He goes, oh, no, no. He goes, they're going to get somebody killed. So I, what he did was he split them up. He took, you know, they couldn't be partners anymore. And he put them on foot believe it or not, at opposite ends of the precinct in hopes they would walk off the weight, which they never did. But they they weren't allowed to work together because they were just that lazy. No, I mean, it's not healthy. You got to be able to chase people and stuff. I have seen a couple episodes of Cops where you see like the, the person that tries to get over that fence and oh, he yeah. tries, but he just does not make it over. He's like, OK, I'm going to go back that way. <laughs> oh, when I. I worked in narcotics. You got to remember, I was in narcotics like at the height of the crack epidemic in New York and especially like up in Spanish Harlem. We'd pull up on a street corner with a description like our undercover would buy from a guy. He'd give us the description. We'd roll up on a corner and you've got 80 people there and probably 20 of them are selling drugs and 60 of them are buying drugs and you would roll up and it was like the fucking rodeo, like just people throwing shit in the air and running in different directions. You know, it was like, and you're always in a foot chase. I, I wasn't narcotics was fun at first, but then after a while it kind of burns you out because it's, you're doing buy and bust every day. You're going to court every day and then you're dealing with street people. So in New York, the people that are selling drugs on the street, they're drug addicts. It's either young kids or drug addicts. And drug addicts are selling drugs to support their habits. So they get a crack, a, a vial of crack for every 10 they sell or a deck of heroin for every 10 they sell. And, you, and these people, I mean, they're street people. They live outdoors. You lock them up and it's like they're coughing. They're not in the best of health. I remember that year and a half I was in narcotics. I always had a cold because you're always deal, they're always sick. And then you're terrified of getting hepatitis C or AIDS because of needles. And a lot of them, they shoot. So you're like, my man, listen, tell me now if you got a needle on you and I'll throw it away. Don't let me find that thing in your sock. And 99% of the time they were cool. They go, yeah, officer, it's in my sock. It's in my sneaker. It's in my sleep. But um, yeah, you always had to worry about that. Yeah. I mean, that was always part of the, you have anything that'll poke me, stick me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there was a couple of times I was in, you know, I got bloodied with somebody that had HIV and it was, it was the scariest, you know, six months, a year of my life going for AIDS tests and stuff. I mean, you know, I remember one time 
we were fighting with this guy. He was a personal trainer and he was HIV positive and um, it was a bloodbath. Went to the hospital to get checked out. And I'll never forget the doctor said to me, he goes, I can start you guys on treatment with this cocktail of drugs that, you know, suppose he wasn't sure. He goes, supposedly it'll nip it in the bud. He goes, but I got to tell you, I mean, this is some serious stuff that could have consequences if you don't get, you know, it could hurt your, you know, your organs. And, um, you know, I says, I don't have any open cuts on me whatsoever. And I know it didn't get in my eyes. So my partner goes, what do you want to do? I says, I'm not doing it. And, you know, we got tested for a year or so and, you know, we were fine. But it's, you know, it, it's one of those things that a lot of people don't think about. It's scary. Absolutely. Yeah. Hepatitis C is another one that is like really contagious. Yeah. And I wouldn't want it, but at least that's curable now. Right. And same with AIDS. Now you can live forever. Right. If you if you if you take these drugs, these antiviral drugs will extend you for decades. But I don't want to risk that either. You know. Right. I mean, yeah, look at Magic Johnson. He's been around forever now. Eight years. I remember when the 1990. I'll never I was down here driving around when that came over the radio. I'm like, holy Magic Johnson. And we used to in New York, everything is the. So it's like Magic Johnson's got the AIDS. You know, it was like <laughs> the cancer. There's a chapter in my book, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. No, really. The picture of a fat bastard on a ladder, smoking a cigarette, oh, doing something God. dangerous yeah, with electricity. You are not kidding. I yeah, love how you come up with the names of these books. <laughs> You got it. When you get into writing, you got it. You got to a have a have a an enticing book cover. It's like a bottle of wine. People are going to pass unless it's interesting. And and people do judge a book by its cover. And B, you got to have a catchy title because if you don't put that effort into it, why would someone trust you with their money and and time? Right. No, I get you know, that. Do, yeah, but there's a chapter in there called the cancer. The cancer. <laughs> the cancer. Well, that's yeah, growing up in the Bronx. That's what they said. The <laughs> cancer. The AIDS. The crabs. I mean, it was that's what they oh call it. But <laughs> did you see a lot of domestic violence? Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, when you're a patrolman, right? Early on in my career, you get called out to um domestics all the time. Probably domestics is a third of the calls that go on in New York. Well, you gotta remember New York City's got nine million people oh. scattered across the five boroughs. So there's a lot of people living together that shouldn't be living together. I'll tell you a dark story about domestic violence. It was um, it was like a Tuesday night, probably about October. It's very slow night. Just started raining. Call comes over as a domestic violence. So one car picks up the call. And again, it's slow. Another car backs them. A couple of seconds later, the dispatcher, you could tell by her voice, she's up. She goes, I'm getting multiple calls on this. So you know there's something to it. So me and my partner decided to go. It's a slow night. Three cars are headed there, right? So what happens is the responding cops, the first cops that get there, they don't pull to the front of the building where the main entrance is. They pull, they park on the side. And as they're getting out of the car, they hear screaming coming from a window. Mm. Why they did this to this day, because they're young and stupid, but they decide instead of going around to the front, they're going to climb the fire escape. And it's raining out, right? But it's only three-story. I think it was like three-story garden apartments. They go up the fire escape in the rain and they look in the window and there's this woman laid out on the floor and there's this guy with a butcher knife and he's basically decapitating her. Oh, so he, my God. So this guy gets on the radio and he starts screaming into the radio. You know, this guy's get the cavalry here. He's, he's killing this woman. Right? So now we're racing over me and my me and my partner, another radio pull up to the front of the building 
as we're getting out of the car, we hear boom, 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 boom. A bunch of shots go off, right? We're putting over shots fired. We're running up the staircase. And this kid is running down the staircase about 13 years old. And he goes, he's killing my mother. He's stabbing my mother. So now we get up to the apartment door and we start banging on that door. We're, we're trying to kick in the door, right? And then we hear our coworkers now in the apartment and they're screaming, don't fucking shoot because they're afraid we're going to shoot into the apartment. They're screaming, don't shoot, don't shoot, don't shoot. I'm like open the fucking door. So they open the door and I'll never forget we came into the apartment, it's like someone lack, lit off a pack of firecrackers because of all the gunpowder. So uh, it's like a haze inside the apartment, right? And as I'm walking around, my feet are sticking to the floor because the amount of blood lost from this woman and the uh, guy that got shot, like, just sticking there. And she's laid out on the floor. This part of her neck is gone. Like, the only thing holding her head to her body is her spine. And this guy took a hammer before he did that, and he broke everything in that apartment, the toilet, the sink, the stoves, the walls. It was not one thing in that apartment that wasn't disturbed by a hammer, including her head. Part of her skull was cracked in, too, if that wasn't enough to decapitate her. So what happened was he's going to town on her. My coworkers are banging on the window. He turns around and goes, oh, you want some of this? Grabs the knife, charges them throws open the window and he starts swinging out the window with with the knife oh my my two friends back then we had 38s which again it's not a nine millimeter but it packs a punch they they shot him up close like six or seven times he falls back into the apartment and dies and my friend told me he goes you know it was like slow motion he goes when i shot when we shot him he goes he went stumbling backwards like fast and he says when he fell back when he hit the floor the butcher knife came out of his hand and went twirling into the next room. He goes, all I could think of is they're going to think I shot an unarmed man. I go, dude, you are good. This is a good shooting. No, you know, you know, like there's no red flag, no challenge. This is fucking, this is a good shooting. Not that there ever is a good shooting, but you know what I mean? So I took the cops, uh, the, the two cops that, that killed the guy to the hospital to get them checked out. And I was just telling the story the other day in New York, when you get your uniform clothes, they don't send you to a tailor. Like I was a cop down here in Florida. They sent me to a tailor. I got this old Italian guy with like a tape measure up my <laughs> armpit, like in New York. They don't do that shit. That's on you and everyone's cheap and nobody does that. If you ever watched, not on television, but if you ever seen New York City cops, their pants are baggy. I mean, everybody looks fat, whether they're fat or not, right? <laughs> so his pants were baggy and he's in the hospital and he runs his hand over his pant leg. There's a slit. The guy got that close with the knife. He cut a hole. Oh, right shit. into his. Yeah, he almost got that is so yes, close answer, for comfort. <laughs> yeah. So to answer your question, yes, there's a lot of domestic things. I there's enough. I walked in on a homicide. Uh, a kid killed his mother in the apartment. I walked in while he mm. was still there. I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of that goes on. Why did he do it? It came over as a cardiac and we, we go up to this building. We're going up the stairs. You hear screaming. We go into the apartment. There's a bunch of people in there. They had a galley kitchen. I see legs sticking out. There's a woman on the floor and her son's on top of her and he's screaming, mom, 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 mom. And the apartment is just covered in blood. And you know, like when you cut yourself, it's bright red, but over time it turns rust color. Right. So it was obvious the blood, she was dead a while. So we get him off of her. We sit him down. The apartment's been ransacked. And I just start asking him basic questions. When was the last time you saw your mother? And then he, it got weird. He's like, he goes from being hysterical to, when was the last time I saw my mother? Four hours ago. I said, all right, do you, do you know anybody that would do this? 
Do I know anybody that would do? So anytime someone starts repeating a question, they're buying time to come up with an answer. So it was obvious he knew more. Right. Detectives come. They bring him into the precinct. Me and my partner are tasked, you know, working with the crime scene, with the crime scene to people from crime. Um, What the hell was it called back then? Crime scene unit. So an hour or two later, we're back at the station house and I talk to the detectives and I says, um, you know, what do you think? And they go, he definitely knows more than he's saying, um, but he's starting to get weird. And um, the, the deceased had three brothers that lived across the street. So his uncles, they're asking the detectives questions. The detectives like he knows more than he's saying. The kid didn't want a lawyer up. He didn't ask for a lawyer, but he wanted to go home. So at that point, you don't want to press because once they say lawyer or abogado, you got to let him go. So they let him go with the mindset. We'll make a run at him first thing in the morning. We'll, we'll go back to him and ask him more questions in the morning, hoping to get to the bottom of this. And they told the uncles, listen, maybe you can get something out of him because he's not cooperating. He knows more. So in, in New York, the first the cops that arrive at a homicide scene, your task the following day, you've got to go to the morgue to identify the body. What you do is before the medical examiner takes the body, since I was one of the cops there, you got to fill out. It's called a toe tag or 95 tag. It's a little piece of oak tag with a string to it. And, you know, all my information. (laughs) Yeah. And I had to tie it on this woman's big toe. Right. So the next day I go to the morgue. It's a Sunday skeleton crew. And um, I hand this kid the paperwork and I'm here to see this woman. And he goes, all right. He goes into this big refrigerated room and he comes out with a girl. He pulls the sheet off. It's a black guy with a beard. I said, no, female Hispanic. This is her name. He goes, oh, he goes back in, comes out a couple of seconds later, pulls the sheet off. And it's a Hispanic wino. I go, what are you, a fucking clown? I says, listen, I says, I didn't come here to see everybody that got whacked in the Bronx last night. I says, let me in there. It's like something out of a horror movie. I walk into this large refrigerated room. There's like eight bodies with sheets over them. I'm looking at people's feet. I see my handwriting, right? And I, I pull the sheet off. That's her. I ID her. I go back to the precinct. Now it's about one, two o'clock in the afternoon. The detectives are all happy. They're high-fiving each other. I'm like, what happened? The next morning, they go to the um, they go back to the apartment. And uh, what winds up happening is, thank God the two cops were Hispanic and they spoke fluent Spanish. When when they were in the hallway, the uncles confronted their nephew and they were asking him questions and he gave it up and they just kind of stood back and heard the whole thing. Basically, he got addicted to crack. He had done this before, stealing from his mother, you know, being abusive towards her. And she told him, I want you out. I can't have you living here anymore like this. He took the carving knife, stabbed her to death, took the knife and the clothes, his bloody clothes, put it in a plastic bag. He left the door ajar, hoping someone would find her. And then he could just show up later and go, I don't know anything. He comes back four hours later after disposing of these things. No one found her. People have seen him coming and going. So then he gets on the phone and he comes up with the whole bullshit story of he found her like this. And I just checked. He's still in jail. So and rightfully so. How old was he? He was young, probably about 18 or 19 years old. God, you just threw your whole life away. Yeah, it was obvious he wasn't right. Like with drugs, like he just had these wild eyes and like the apartment was I always tell that story that the apartment was ransacked, but then we started looking around and uh, it, it was staged. So when someone breaks into your house or apartment, they're going to dump stuff out of the drawers, looking for stuff, rooting around, right? They don't dump stuff and put the drawers right back in. You know what I mean? So like he went through the trouble of ransacking the apartment and then put all the drawers back. 
Then he dumped your bag upside down and put it right side up. The credit cards were still there. A lot of things weren't adding up. That's not enough to charge him, but it just takes you to the next step. Right, right. Yeah, I, I'm sure it gets super frustrating when you know somebody did something, but you just can't prove it beyond reasonable doubt. Like, that's got to be the most frustrating yeah. thing. I see it all the time, and it it's like, oh, my God. But you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, it's um uh, that case that I did with a car being shipped to China. Um, One of the thieves in that case, when we were up on wiretaps, it was obvious he he they were in the murder for hire business like these guys there's a bunch of them a bunch of these these car thieves were killers but one killed about 15 people mm. and uh you know when we took the case down the getaway driver on a lot of these homicides were like yeah i was involved but i i didn't shoot anybody but i rode the i drove the motorcycle with him on the back i drove up in a car he got blasted this guy but i mean we were able to solve about 15 homicides but there there were more we just could not get it out of them. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever arrested a serial killer? Yeah, that guy, that guy that I was just telling you about. He this guy, not only was he a thief, he just he would kill he would kill people. What they would these guys would do is they would ride around in lower Manhattan in a pack of motorcycles, right? And one guy would hang on the back of a bike. And if they saw your brand new bike that they wanted, they'd surround you with a light. So it just looked like a bunch of motorcycle enthusiasts pulling up to a light. He'd get off the back and point a gun at you. Get the fuck off the bike. If you didn't get off that bike fast enough, he killed you. Did that several times. Wow. People have no respect. They killed a guy up in Connecticut. I know I'm going to get the story wrong, and forgive me if I do in case a defense attorney's listening, but this is kind of the gist of it. Three guys, like 10 years before, are robbing banks in, in Connecticut, and one guy gets ca- one guy gets caught, and he doesn't give up his friends. He goes away and does some federal time. His friends take the proceeds from the bank robberies, and they become big players in Connecticut. They're they're moving kilos, right? Their friend gets out of jail, and he says, listen, I did time. I didn't rat. I want my share. They said, sure. And they treat him like a lackey. They pat him on the head. Go kill this guy. Go pick up this kilo. Go rough this guy up. Basically treating him as an errand boy. Doesn't sit well with this guy. So what he does is he kidnaps one of their couriers, beats the shit out of the guy, puts him in the trunk of his car for a weekend, takes his kilos. I actually locked oh, this guy up for a stolen motorcycle, but that's another story. So and and sends this guy back to, to the two friends and says, tell those fucking guys I'm not kidding around. The next time I'm going to kill somebody. Uh, equal partners. I did my time. I want a third. <laughs> like he, We don't want an equal partner. He was useful. And we were robbing banks. He's got to go. So what they do is they get in touch with our car thieves and motorcycle thieves in the Bronx, and they get this guy, Fausto, the, the serial killer guy, and they go up to Connecticut, and they get this guy's pattern when he's coming and going. They ride up on a motorcycle to him. They ask him for a light or what time is it? And while the guy is fumbling around for something, Fausto's on the back of the bike. He hits this guy like 11 or 14 times with the Glock, basically cuts the guy to cheese, Swiss oh, cheese. Jesus. They drive off with the motorcycle. They put the motorcycle in a, um, a U-Haul truck. Everyone's looking for a motorcycle. They drive the motorcycle back down to the Bronx. They chop it, tag it, whatever they do with it. And, um, you know, after after we took down that stolen vehicle case, 
then everybody was looking to cut a deal. Like I know about this homicide, but we kind of knew about them anyway, because they were bragging and laughing about it on the wiretaps. Right. <laughs> I would love to listen to wiretaps. I'm nosy. And that would just be it's fun. <laughs> it's funny. And then sometimes you're pulling your hair out of your head. So th- there's times they're talking in code. You got to figure out what they're talking about. There's times the girlfriends get on the phone and you don't know is like, are they talking about nonsense for you to get off the line that they can go right into what they're doing? It's a. If I was, I would never use a phone. It would be the. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I never. Yeah. I'd meet no, you in a I bowling mean- alley or Home Depot where you can't get them with parabolics. I don't know why I'm telling all these secrets. <laughs> You're a good interviewer. <laughs> well, do you want to tell everybody the name of all of your fabulous books and where they can sure. find them? Sure. All my books are on Amazon. So let's start with the last. My last book is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's got a picture of a kid in a Catholic high school uniform running out of a confessional being chased by a priest. That really happened to me. No, I wasn't molested, but I've lived a very colorful life. As you can tell, I'm a smart ass and sometimes it comes back to haunt me. Um, (laughs) NYPD Law and Disorder. It's filled with funny stories from my NYPD career. You've got the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. It's got a lot of funny stories, including a friend of mine that stole a horse and carriage from a wild ride through Scent Park. Um, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department. That's got a lot of funny stories in it. What else do I got here? Ooh, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. It's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry. Who steals your car? What happens in a chop shop? Funny stories. I got a story. I I I took a car away from a diplomat that was driving around with a stolen car. And then finally, dickheads and debauchery and other ingenious ways to die. All my books my are favorite. on Amazon. Thank you. Just go to the Amazon section. Um, uh, go to the book section on Amazon. Put in Vic Ferrari like the car. My books come up. They're all ten bucks. They make great stocking stuffers, and they're two ninety nine ebook download. Perfect. Is there anything else that you wanted to share? Um, you can follow me or you want to get a hold of me on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. All right. Well, thank you. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. Jesus. <laughs> no, this is great. It was a great interview. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and please make sure to like, follow, or subscribe on whatever platform you listen on or all of them. Come find me on Instagram or Facebook. I even have a TikTok. Um, Actually, I think I have two. But speaking of two, turns out I also have two Spotify's. So I guess when I changed my domain, my Spotify popped up with another one. So if you've been using that platform and wondering where the heck my episodes are, it's on that other one. I didn't know that either. But while you're there, make sure to leave a five-star review there or Apple and head over to crimeovercocktails.com. You can listen to the episodes, learn more about me, and you can get some important contact information if you should ever need it. All right, you guys, we'll talk crime another time. Bye. Bye.